Reflections on the Bible by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 The first voice we heard was of the victim himself, the psalmist. And the second voice we hear is somebody who can speak it, not because he's the victim, but because he's so God-grounded that he doesn't get caught up in the victimizer's cult. But because he doesn't get caught up in the victimizer's cult, when it comes time to find a weirdo, he's it. Got to have a weirdo, and he's the one. Say, so how about him? Maybe he's the problem. He's been going around talking that way, and it's not good for morale. And so he gets it. He and Job are, Job's fictional character, he, Jeremiah is very much not, and they're different dates of their material. But they both represent the same thing. They both are the occasion for the collapse of the Deuteronomic theology. Deuteronomic theology was, if you do the right thing, God will pat you on the back. If you do the wrong thing, you get punished. Jeremiah is the personification of the crisis, for, and so is Job, of the crisis for Deuteronomic theology. And Jeremiah calls out like the psalmist does. He says to Yahweh, wait a minute. I've spent my life putting up with these people, speaking the truth to them. And look what I'm getting. I'm in the well again. I'm in the prison again. They're chasing me out of town again. When does the day come when the score gets settled? Jeremiah had a secretary. His name was Baruch, probably. And because his secretary was there to record certain things, we, we have a record of internal experience of Jeremiah, his confessions these little poems that are called his confessions. And here's what Claus Cox says about them. As an expression of personal reflection, these poems go beyond anything known to us in Israel and in the ancient world. For the first time in the literature of the world, the voice of an individual is heard. The voice, moreover, of an individual tormented by boundless suffering. He called a spade a spade, and he became the victim. In the first instance, he did it because he was God-grounded. In the second in instance, he is both God-grounded and the victim. He has what Andrew McKenna has this phrase. He talks about the victim's epistemological privilege. It's the only privilege left. <laughs> the victim's epistemological privilege means he can see things that nobody else can see because he's not caught up in it. Well, Jeremiah, having been stripped of every other privilege, has the epistemological one. He's God-grounded enough not to have been caught up in it, and now he's the victim of it. For, for two reasons. He's independent of it. He sees what's happening. In the confessions, he debates with Yahweh the way Job does. He says, what's going on here? I've done your work, and what's happening? The whole Deuteronomic theology is collapsing right in front of him, and he's recording it. He asks for vengeance, and we can't fault him for that. You know, he's not, He doesn't have the Gospels to go on. He's leading up to them, but he, doesn't, he says, cries out for vengeance from God. He says, I never took pleasure in sitting in scoffer's company. With your hand on me, I held myself aloof. Scoffer's company. How many times have you sat in scoffer's company? Lots. That's how it starts. It's one of the ways it starts. He says, I never took pleasure in sitting in scoffer's company. Who of us in here can say you never took pleasure in sitting in scoffer's company? Of course we do. It's this thing we get into. He said, I never did it. Why? Because Yahweh's hand was on it. I never took pleasure in sitting in scoffer's company. With your hand on me, I held myself aloof. There's the source of the independence. But now he wants to know what's going on. 
And he cries out to Yahweh like the psalmist. Not for my sake, he says, not for my sake, but for your sake. I thought we had this deal. I thought that's the kind of God you were. What's going on? He says. At the pit of his despair, he says, you seduced me, Yahweh, and I let myself be seduced. You overpowered me. You were the stronger. The word seduced, is, the word pata means to seduce an unmarried woman. But in the next verse, the word overpowered, hazak, means to have a violent intercourse, which is just shy, if shy at all, of rape. So he says, that's what you did to me, Yahweh. One exegete says, we have a four-letter word in English for that, uh, what he's claiming Yahweh did to him. That's what, that's what I got for him. He's at the pit of his despair. The word of Yahweh has meant nothing for me except insult and derision all day long. I used to say, I will not think about him. I will not speak in his name anymore. Then there seemed to be a fire burning in my heart, imprisoned in my bones. The effort to restrain it wearied me. I could not bear it. But it breaks through for him. On the other side of it, in, the, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, it breaks through. And he says, I understand now that nothing will work except a fundamental transformation. We'll si we all simply have to be remade. The way we are now simply is so caught up in it, we can't pull away from it unless we have a complete overhaul. We must have a new covenant. Now, we think of the... See, when he said new covenant, he knocked them off their chairs. The whole point had been they had the covenant. And here's this guy saying, we've got to have a new one. Not like the one before, which we violated. He said, no, this one, Yahweh will plant the law in our hearts, writing the law on our hearts. Then, Yahweh speaking, then I will be their God and they shall be my people. There will be no further need, I'm sorry to have to say this, there will be no further need for neighbor to try to teach neighbor or brother to say to brother, learn to know Yahweh. No, they will all know me, the least and the less than the greatest. It is Yahweh who speaks, since I will forgive their iniquity and never call to mind their sin. What? How are you going to do this? How are you going to write the law on their hearts, Yahweh? This is the astounding thing of Jeremiah. Here's how you do it. Forgive them. What a shock it must have been to Jeremiah. He spent his life condemning them. And then he hears Yahweh say, well, I'm going, don't worry, I'm going to remake them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And then they will know that I'm their God and they're my people because I will have forgiven them. Forgive them? You, you go around railing against them? You can't get them to fess up? And so Yahweh says, well, you just have to trump that. You just have to forgive, forgive them. It's unforgiven people that do these terrible things. That's what's wrong with the world. Unforgiven people. Why do we do them? To self-justify. We do them to self-justify. Forgiven people are, are, are harmless. <laughs> but too many unforgiven people, that's the problem. Now that's a tremendous breakthrough. Now that is, going from Deuteronomic theology to that is a huge leap made in one man's lifetime. So huge that nobody kept up with him, as you may have noticed. <laughs> I've done this when we did, I think when we did the prophets, I did this, and it's, I shouldn't take time for it. We're rushed for time, but I want to do it because I love Jeremiah. Sometimes I can almost choke up reading this poem. I, I, I'm going to try not to, but 
not because it's a poem necessarily, but because of Jeremiah. So I want to read it uh, in his honor to try to say what he meant for this journey that Israel's trying to make and that we're trying to make into the promised land, which is the love of God. It's a story from John Nyhart's Cycle of the West. Jedediah Smith was a, was a Western explorer who's taking this ragtag crowd of ne'er-do-wells towards California. And Jedediah is always quoting the Bible, and he's a very religious guy. And uh, he's their sort of Moses figure. And he says to them, they're worn out. And he says to them, you see that mountain there, that mountain range? He said, just on the other side of that is, the, is California. It's lush green. And they say, okay, if you say so. So they make this one final effort. And this poem takes place at the moment when Jedediah, they call him Diah or Jed, has just reached the saddle of the ridge and looks out. But nobody else has gotten up there yet. And this is the story of how somebody else comes up behind him. And when he looks out, what he sees is an endless expanse of desert. Jedediah is a little bit like Jeremiah, so I don't know. One look at Diah told the answer that I knew. It was an old, old man I saw a moment in his place, the look of something broken in his face that wasn't to be mended anymore. I see that I had never known before how much I'd leaned upon him like a child until he turned that face on me and smiled when nothing but the smile of it was Jed. You see, it's just beyond the salt, he said, a little way. But for a moment there, not anything but hearing Silas swear beneath his breath was left to fill the lack until I saw that hawk gaze coming back, that long-range look of something that he saw beyond you, and the setting of the jaw was cruel in the face that it denied. I didn't know how lean and hollow-eyed it was until the light of it went dim, that quicksand moment when I pitied him, the leaner on his pity, even I. Well, yonder looked as good a place to die as any other then, but now I know I went because he wanted me to go. For more than pity happened in that bleak, forsaken moment when I saw him weak upon that ridge. I'd just begun to love him. And something in the breaking manhood of him was stronger than his old, unbroken might. Now, there's something for you. Something, something in the breaking manhood of him was stronger than his old, unbroken might. Jeremiah. And second Isaiah, who's made possible by Jeremiah. The book of Isaiah, it, the scholars have decided, determined that it breaks down into the, at least three categories. We know it was written in three stages. And the second stage was written by this most unique person in the whole Old Testament canon. It, it, the fact that he's there proves that there's a God. Second Isaiah is a miracle. Jeremiah is too, but second Isaiah is something. And the irony is that he, he claimed to be doing nothing but passing on a tradition. And he remained so anonymous we don't even know his name. So a person who's willing to remain anonymous and who says he's doing nothing but passing on the tradition made the most startling discoveries in the Bible about the mystery of human existence. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Jesus and Paul, uh, but uh, second Isaiah is amazing. First Isaiah had said, I bind up my testimony, I seal this revelation in the heart of my disciples. First Isaiah realized that nobody was getting it. And he had a little school of students, and he taught it to them. So he says, I'm sealing up my testimony in their hearts because nobody else is ready for it. When 2nd Isaiah starts to write, he says, 
the Lord has given me a disciple's tongue. Each morning he wakes me to hear, to listen like a disciple. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear. So he says, I'm a disciple. I'm, I'm a, Isaiah's a disciple. I'm simply speaking what he put in my heart. And it, it's like the bristlecone pine. It opens when the forest fire comes. You seal it in the heart, and when the heart breaks, lo and behold, there it is. That's the whole purpose of uh, religious education, by the way, I think. I mean, I have two small children. But I think it is to put something in the heart so that when the heart breaks, there will be a surprising discovery. The, the other option is to, to try to prevent heartbreak. And uh, can't be done. And uh, who here would trade theirs in? Where would we be without them? But second Isaiah knew that there had to be something radically new happen. And he calls himself the joyful messenger of Yahweh. And when this translates into the Greek Septuagint, the Greek the Old Testament, the word used to translate that phrase is the word gospel. So second Isaiah is the evangelist of the Old Testament. He says, this is the gospel I'm speaking. This is the good news I'm speaking. How could it be the good news? Same thing asked of Jesus or, or Paul. People said, you call that good news? How could that be good news? What, what Second Isaiah is famous for is the four servant song. Second Isaiah became the victim. He was clearly the victim of his people, the same way Jeremiah was, uh, but apparently even more uh, viciously. And out of that, now there was a little school of people that had been sufficiently influenced by Second Isaiah so that when the victimizing vortex developed, not only was he outside it, so were his, the people that he had prepared. So the, with the psalmist, there's just the one voice. With Jeremiah, there's Jeremiah and his secretary, Baruch. His secretary sees it objectively. He describes Jeremiah's tortures and recognizes that the day will come when everybody will realize that Jeremiah was right and everybody else was wrong, which means that Baruch was able to see it too. Somebody other than the victim was able to see it. And with Second Isaiah, it's a little community that he's been working with. And after he's dead, they're able to see it. While he's being victimized, they're able to see it. They're not caught up in it. So we have reason for hope. Something gro something's growing in the agar plate here. See? Some little community that is identifying with the victim, as opposed to the victimizing horde. And so Second Isaiah is, is being tormented. And it says, for my part, I made no resistance. Neither did I turn away. I offered my back to those who struck me my cheeks to those who tore at my beard. I did not cover my face against insult and spittle. Now, this is a radically new idea. I simply let them, I let it play out right there. And then his community writes at the moment, I think this is what they're writing after they've witnessed his death, but it's unclear. As the crowds were appalled on seeing him, see this is written in the third person, as the crowds were appalled on seeing him, so disfigured did he look that he seems no longer human. And of course, that's the point, is to make the victim seem no longer human so it doesn't arouse moral misgiving. So will the crowds be astonished at him, and kings will stand speechless before him. For they shall see something never told and witness something never heard before. Like a sapling, he grew up in front of us. Like a root in arid ground, without beauty, without majesty, we saw him. No looks to attract the eyes, a thing despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, a man to make other people screen their faces. He was despised, and we took no account of him. And yet ours were the sufferings he bore. 
hours of sorrows he carried. But we, we thought he was someone punished, struck by God, brought low, crushed. Yet he was pierced through for our sins, crushed for our sins. On him lies a punishment that brings us peace, and through his wounds we are healed. Now that does not reach the perfect clarity of the Gospels, but it doesn't fall short by much. We had all gone astray like sheep, each taking his own way, and Yahweh burdened him with the sins of all of us. He's the scapegoat. Like a lamb led to the slaughterhouse, and actually Apostles Philips catches up with the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading this passage, and he says to the eunuch, you understand what you're reading? He says, are you kidding? How could, any, how could a person understand? And Philip tells him about the crucifixion. That's what we did to the Messiah, Philip and then the Ethiopian says, any water around here? I want to get baptized. By force and by law, he was taken. That is to say, by the mob and by the legal apparatus. Would anyone plead his cause? No. And then a little community begins to develop that identifies with the victim and not with the victimizer. And so you have the seeds of the New Testament right there. But... It's also clear that the world, not even the Hebrew world, was ready for that. And it literally went underground. It simply became part of the collected memory, but not to be comprehended. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, people read it and thought it was strange, but didn't connect it to human anthropology in any way. Didn't, didn't see that as, as revealing some deeper meaning and mystery. It just sat there, waiting. In a way, first Isaiah put it into the hearts of his disciples, and second Isaiah put it into the soul of Israel and sealed it into the soul of Israel until the moment came when the soul of Israel took on a body, incarnated. And second Isaiah and Psalm 22 became essential for the understanding by Jesus, I think, himself and by the early Christians of what his ministry meant. The church is the community that identifies with the victim. Not because the victims are better than the victimizers. Remember, remember Moses found out the next day in the brickyard. The victims, aren't, the victims aren't any better than the victimizers. The victims may be scoundrels. That's not the point. The point is that, that to awaken from that delusion, we have to say, hey, no more victims. The prophets had been dead. No word from the prophets. And suddenly, this, like a desert wind, this John the Baptist slammed into the conventional religious piety. And what John the Baptist said was, you can't get there from here. A totally new orientation has to take place. You can't just keep maintaining the, the religious cult. You can't just keep participating in a religious cult. A profound transformation has to take place. A metanoia. Metanoia means a, an experience that is after some profound turnaround to perceive the world from the other side of an event. So he said we have to, there has to be a break. And so he took people down into the Jordan. Now, other people had baptized, the Essenes baptized, but it was a... It was a daily little ritual for them. And John says, no, we don't need that. We're going to do it once and for all. 
and I'm going to dunk you in this water and bring you up and you're going to start life. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. Only that kind of fundamental change. This is very much in keeping with Jeremiah's idea of the, of the Torah written on the heart. Something like that has to happen. And Jesus found that message compelling. What we know about Jesus is that Jesus was a disciple of John. Now, the, first, the early church had a lot of trouble with that because uh, they were going around telling the world that this was the, this was the incarnate God. And uh, it's a little embarrassing to discover that the incarnate God was somebody else's disciple, particularly when there were John and I communities in existence in the late first century when the Christians were trying to establish themselves. So they could come over and say, well, he may have been whatever you said he was, but he learned it from our guy. So it's a little embarrassing. But I think what John, Jesus learns from John is that a profound transformation has to take place. And uh, Jesus stepped into the Jordan with John presiding and had one. And as he told it to his friends later, again, he's not a Greek philosopher, he's a, he's a Semite, and he tells it in stories. And he says, well, it was like this. The heavens opened up and I heard a voice say, you are my son. Now, how's that for a shocker? See, we're, not, we're used to it because we got the Lord's Prayer. We've been mumbling that for 2,000 years. He said, I, I came up out of that water and I discovered that God was my Abba, my Aramaic for daddy, that God was available, was intimate, was not some, you know, holy, uh, remote reality, but was intimate and constantly with me. And it's that Abba experience, that, like the prophets, that gave Jesus his uniqueness. The way he corrected John was that John knew that everybody had to experience forgiveness. But John insisted that they experience repentance first. And we do need lots of times to experience repentance first. But it's just as easy to re experience repentance afterward. The point is to be forgiven. Well, John insisted that people experience it first. And Jesus at some point decides that if you can get them to experience forgiveness, the repentance will take care of itself. So where John went around saying, you're wrong and you better repent, Jesus went around saying, how's it going? You're forgiven. Now you would think that Jesus would have an easier go of it because of that. But when Herod killed John, Jesus knew from that moment on that he was going to be killed too. And he began to look at John's death and he began to say, he died, but his message didn't live on. There's something about the way he died that didn't convey, that didn't, his message didn't survive it. I'm, I'm making this up, you see. And I don't want to get too far down that line because I want to come back and talk about something else. But I think it's important to remember how important John was for Jesus and how Jesus went to the desert to be tempted to learn what he was not going to do with his ministry. The devil in the, in the desert the devil is the voice of God heard, heard through the ears of the ego. The voice of God says, you are my beloved son. And the ego said, oh yeah? And in the desert, we hear the voice of God as the ego hears it, which is, hey, why don't you pull off some really stunning thing? Why don't you do something worthwhile? If you're the son of God, why don't you do something worthwhile? There are a lot of hungry people. Why don't you feed the world? How about, how, how about turning stones into loaves of bread? That would be a nice thing. It would be a nice thing. People who do that are doing something more important than what I'm doing sitting up here, I'll tell you that. But it wasn't, it wasn't what Jesus was supposed to do. So he said, people don't live by bread alone. That's not what I'm supposed to do. 
So he said, well, why don't you perform some... I don't want to go through all these, but anyway, one by one, he rejected those. He said, that's not going to be what I'm here for. So he comes back and begins to forgive people. In Jeremiah, God said, they will come to know me because I will have forgiven them. And so Jesus realizes in some way, in his ministry, he realizes that the problem is unforgiveness. People are unforgiven. And unforgiven people will do all kinds of mischief. So he goes around forgiving people. But people didn't like it. See, over here was the religious cult that was doing a land office business in sin and forgiveness. It was a transaction. And they looked over here, and here's Jesus going around saying, well, you're forgiven. And they said, well, wait a minute. We didn't say so. Well, this is a story about that. They came to the land in the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. He was stepping ashore when a man from the town who was possessed by devils or by demons came toward him. For a long time, the man had worn no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. He's a tomb dweller. Catching sight of Jesus, he gave a shout, fell at his feet, and cried out at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, do not torture me. For Jesus had been telling the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It was a demon that had seized him a great many times. And then they used to secure him with chains, the local community, and fetters to restrain him. But he would always break the fastenings, and the demon would drive him out into the wild. What is your name, Jesus said? Legion. He said, because many demons had gone into him. Why many? Where did they come from, these many that went into him? And these pleaded with him not to order them to depart to the abyss. Now there was a large crowd of pigs feeding there on the mountain, and the, and the demons pleaded with him to let them go to these. So he gave them leave. The demons came out of the man, went into the herd of pigs, and charged down the cliff into the lake and were drowned. When the swineherds saw what had happened, they ran off and told their story to the town and in the country around about, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they found the man from whom the devils had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his full senses, and they were afraid. Those who had witnessed it told them how the man who had been possessed came to be healed. The entire population of the Gerizim territory was in a state of panic and asked Jesus to leave them. Now, isn't that a strange story? Many demons had gone into this man on a number of occasions, and each time they did, he was run out of town. And then he would come back and be chained up, and he would break the fetters, and they took him to the tomb and locked him in the tomb, or he lived in the tomb. It's, it's not altogether clear. These demons that had gone into him were many, like the people that lived in the territory. And when this man is cured and is no longer a uh, crazy man, they panic because they have lost their scapegoat. All the demons that went into him had to come from someplace. Where'd they live before they went into him? Doesn't say. Who am I to say? I don't know. I'd tell you where I think they came from. The garrison. All the demons went into him, and he was run out of town. It's the scapegoat ritual, is it not? It's the homemade version of the scapegoat ritual, done without the official priestly sponsorship, no doubt, but it's the same pattern. And Jesus comes in and cures him. 
and takes the demons out of him and puts them into pigs, considered unclean by the Jews, of course, and runs them off the side into the lake. And he interrupts the process. He heals the one that everybody had lived off of. Everybody had, the, the community had been able to come together because of this guy. It was indebted to him because he had been the repository. He had been the garbage dump for their demon whenever it had to be, had to happen. They dumped their demons on him, ran him out of town or chained him up or made him live in the tomb. And Jesus comes along and breaks the party up and heals him and runs the demons off and everybody panics. What have you done? By forgiving, you rob us. It doesn't say forgiveness in the story, but I can, uh, there's, there are several others that are just like it where, where the issue is forgiveness. By forgiving like that, you rob us of the scapegoat. And we don't know how to live without one. It doesn't say that, but, it, but I think it's, it, we have to ask ourselves, where does the panic come from? You have to live, if you don't have that mechanism, you're going to have to live in another cosmos. You're going to have to find another way of being. Well, now Jesus is going around, he's saying, well, look, I'm doing this one by one. This is, good. This is a long job. Even if I could make the rounds quicker than I am, he says, uh, I could only touch a very few people before my days would be gone, and uh, I would only be touching a few people in Palestine in my time. Is there any place I can go? Is there any hill high enough so that I could go to it and be able to, from that place, blanketly forgive everybody for everything? First of all, that unforgiveness, where does that unforgiveness lead? Listen, let me go back and read Jeremiah. Where does unforgiveness lead? Well, it looks like it leads to victimization, leads to violence, leads to bloodshed, leads to the horde that gathered around Isaiah. Jesus didn't know he was second Isaiah. He just thought he was Isaiah. It leads to the horde gathering around Isaiah. That's what unforgiveness leads to. So instead of me going around doing it one at a time, what if I could go to some place, which is where all the sins lead to anyway, sort of in the sense that I'll meet you there. You don't know where your unforgiveness is leading you, but I do, and I'll meet you there. When you get there, I'll be there, and when you get there, I'll forgive you. Now, I'm being, I, this is being silly in a way. I'm talking romantic in a way. But the cross was the place. To become the victim, the innocent victim, and to be raised up on the torture chamber, which is also the scaffold, and to look down on humanity from that position and say, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you could do that, I'm, I'm just telling a story, see, but if you could do that, you could begin to provide the world with the one thing it needs, forgiveness. If people can feel forgiven, they can refrain from this fear-ridden, compensatory activity of theirs. And they can begin to live in the love of God, which is what it's all about. Now, Jesus is going around attracting crowds in various ways. He's forgiving them, and then he's doing other astounding things, miracles, really. Like, for instance, he's preaching one day, and his friends come up, and they say, it's time to eat, and we don't have much here to eat. And Jesus looks around, and he says, well, you not much to eat, huh? Eating was sacred uh, to the Jews of Jesus' time. You didn't do it except inside your home with people you knew to be righteous people. Sin was not something that required uh, some kind of 
uh, inner consent was something you could do without knowing it. If you ate with a sinner, you became sinful. You start eating with sinners. It's like Jesus eating with the tax collector and so on raises all kinds of questions. So here they are sitting on the hillside listening to him. His friends say, we don't have enough food and there's not enough food around. I'm just telling you how I see the story. Jesus looks and he sees all these people who are thinking, who are looking at those people beside him wondering, I wonder if they're sinners. Because if I break out my bag lunch right here, and they are, I could be in trouble. And Jesus uh, says to his friends, what, what do you got there? And they say, well, a few fish, a few loaves of bread. And he says, watch this. And he goes around and breaks a little loaf of bread off and hands it to somebody and says, hey, have some bread. Want a little piece of dried fish? Here, have this. Have, have a little piece of bread. And these people receive it. They kind of look around at one another. Something starts to happen. Somebody says, oh, yeah, I, I forgot. I've got a little uh, piece of cheese here myself. And somebody says, oh, yeah, I've got a, I, a little loaf of bread here. Start that. Now, that's a miracle. See, that is a miracle. And then Jesus, who's, who's got a great sense of humor, turns to his friends and says, just for kicks, round up the leftovers. I want to show you something. And they get this big pile of leftovers. And Jesus says, see? So he's doing things like that with freedom. He's saying, hey, we're talking freedom here, folks. And uh, people who want to be part of that world start coming around, a big crowd. The zealots have an eye for crowds. The zealots are the political revolutionaries who want to throw the Romans out of the place. This is apocryphal. That means you don't have to believe it. His time was politically electric. Everything was seen, like our time, it was politic- everything was political because of the Roman occupation and the Jews that, were, that bristled at the fact that the Romans were occupying their country and so on. And you see it in the Gospels all over the place. The zealots want to throw the rascals out. They haven't learned what Moses learned the second day in the brickyard. So they say to Jesus, or they send a message to Jesus, but somehow they communicate with Jesus. We would like for you, we need a king. We have our plans, our strategies, our cache of weapons. We are ready to take on the Romans, but we need a charismatic political leader who we can anoint king when we make our move. And the time to make the move is at the Passover festival in Jerusalem. That's where our population center is. That's where all the people will be coming together. And we can galvanize a powerful political and military force quickly under the right circumstances. We will be ready. And we want you, as the the festival starts, we want you to come into town. And we will prepare our followers to meet you as the new king. And we will send our people out with palm branches to meet the new king. And your sign to us will be that you will ride in on a war horse. It's the gospel truth. It's right in this book right here. (laughs) It comes from a scholarly analysis of what might have happened. I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened. Maybe nothing happened. But the story that has in it the mystery... And Jesus said to his friends, go get me a donkey. Because they don't understand. 
So he came into Jerusalem and they arrested him. And this is from the Gospel of John. They went out to arrest him and the police came, uh, the soldiers from the, the Roman soldiers and the temple police, the Jews and the Romans converging. And they carried lanterns, weapons, and torches, the basic implements of the sacrificial cult in its historical manifestation. Lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus in the, gospel, the same gospel des describes himself as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So here's the light of the world standing there, and here are these poor benighted people caught up in the sacrificial cult, stumbling through the darkness with their lanterns and torches and weapons. They show up and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am. I am. That's what God had said to Moses in the burning bush. Moses says, well, what's your name? And God said, I am is my name. So, aye, asher, aye, I am who am. God's name is I am. God's name is the verb to be. This is the truth. God's name is the verb to be. So, Jesus said, I am. Now, here's the moment at which he's becoming the victim. Unmistakably, now, he's, he's going to be the victim. And at that moment, he says, he says, if God were to incarnate in your world, you know where he would show up? You have been expecting one of the, some Davidic Messiah, some great king. He will be the victim. That's how, that's how God will come into the human history. So he said, I am. Pilate says to, the, to those clamoring for a crucifixion, uh, well, I could give you one person. Uh, Passover time, I release one to you. Shall I release this man or this insurrectionist whose name is Barabbas? And they all say Barabbas. Now, there's uh, apocryphal hints that, not altogether apocryphal, that Barabbas' name was Jesus Barabbas. And Barabbas means son of the father, Bar-Abba. So you have two Jesus Barabbas. There we have them. Jesus, the son of the father, the father he discovered it in the Jordan, or Jesus, the chip off the old block. Jesus, the Barabbas who means more of the same. One of the boys, Barabbas. Who you want? The son of Abba, the father, or one of the guys? One of the guys, please. We would rather stay and fight than be forgiven and live in the love of God. Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's bench in a place called the Stone Pavement, Gabbatha being its Hebrew name. Remember, it was the day of preparation for Passover and the hour was about noon. And he said, here is your king. And they said, crucify him. Now, what scholars tell us is that the verb here to sit down on that bench can be transitive or intransitive, meaning that it's just as possible to read it this way. Pilate brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's bench. And that makes more sense out of the next line, which is, it was the day of preparation for Passover and the hour was about noon. On the preparation day at noon is when the lamb was taken to the altar and slaughtered. The slaughter began on the stone altar at the temple. So we have now a stone slab on which is sitting the victim, except that the victim's seat is now the judgment seat. The victim is in the place of judgment. The victim now is looking out 
on the community of sacrificers as the judge of it. But there's something of that John and I uh, reality here because when Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew has this, at, that, the ve- at the moment of death, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the temple was the place of the sacrificial cult. The central activity at the temple, the temple was not the synagogue. Synagogue is where you talked it over. The temple is where push comes to shove and the, the sacrifices were made and the priesthood is in attendance and so on and so forth. At the moment of Jesus' death, the veil over the Holy of Holies at the place of the sacrificial cult is rent in two. The Greek word apocalypse means to unveil, to unveil the sacrificial cult. The earth quaked, rocks were split, and tombs opened, and the bodies of many holy men rose from the dead. And these, after the resurrection, came out of the tombs, entered the holy city, and appeared to a number of people. Now, what do we make of that? The tombs opened, and the bodies of many holy ones that had been in the tombs came out and had to be dealt with. Think of it that way certain lives of certain holy ones who had been neatly tucked away in their tombs suddenly now had to be dealt with. The former victims, the prophets, those who had died in the past are suddenly now having to be dealt with because we've had revealed to us what it's been about, what we've been doing. In Luke, Jesus says, Alas for you who build the tombs of the prophets, the men your ancestors killed. In this way, you both witness what your ancestors did and approve it. They did the killing, you do the building. He analyzes the whole thing right there. Howard Nemiroff says, murders become memories and memories become the beautiful obligation. They did the killing and you gussy up the tombs. You tell the myths. You explain away the murder. And then Jesus goes on to say, And that is why the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some they will slaughter and persecute so that this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Yes, I tell you, this generation will have to answer for it all. Once it's revealed... This generation is any human generation or any human person who comes in to confront the revelation of the the crucifixion. This is what it comes to. We crucified, we victimized the incarnate God in the name of God. Jesus has already said, watch out for tombs. Tombs is where we get in trouble. Tombs represent the myth that we apply after the murder. We tuck them away in the tomb and write our own inscription over it. Here's what René Girard says. People do not wish to know that the whole of human culture is based on the mythic process of conjuring away man's violence by endlessly projecting it upon new victims. All cultures and all religions are built on this foundation, which they then conceal just as the tomb is built around the dead body that it conceals. Murder calls for the tomb, and the tomb is built around the dead body that it conceals. Murder calls for the tomb, and the tomb is but the prolongation and the perpetuation of murder. The tomb religion amounts to nothing more or less than the becoming visible of the foundations of religion and culture. Watch out for tombs.
And then he says, Jesus at once reveals and unambiguously compromises the history of all human culture. That is why he takes to himself the words of Psalm 78, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is how we've done it, folks. This is what we've been up to. Okay, so you've got to watch out for tombs. Tombs is where the murders turn into the beautiful obligation. The tomb is where the murder turns into religion. On the first day of the week, at the first sign of dawn, they went to the tomb with spices they had prepared. Now, that's the natural impulse. Our leader has been killed, and the natural thing is to begin to revere his tomb. He, of course, has to be properly embalmed, but I think there is more importantly here the sense of going to the tomb as an act of devotion. Let's go to the tomb where the corpse is and begin to... You, you see, the, this is the embryo of a new religious cult, to go to the tomb. Here's how it would happen. You would go to the tomb and you would put your flowers there. And then later on, be a group of people come together and say, well, what we need is a little archway here. And we put the little archway in place. And then we need a couple of little icons on either side of this. And then maybe a little couple of hedges, hedgerows here in the path leading up to the tomb. And then we'll ask people to genuflect here. And then we'll have a few little pews over here on the side. I'm making all this up, you understand. But you've got to watch out for tombs because it can just become what Jesus said it was. Their fathers murdered the prophets and they gussied up their tombs. He said the same thing could happen. So they go out to the tomb with their spices and ointments and good intentions. And he's not there. Now, there's a lot of ways he could not be there. You could walk in and uh, it, would, it could be empty. That's probably what happened. Nobody knows why, probably what happened. Another possibility is you could walk in, walk in and the corpse could be there, but you could have the profound experience that he is not here, regardless of whether the corpse is there. The only important experience was that he is not here. The he is not here experience lets you, cuts you free from the tomb. He is not here. He has gone before you to Galilee. The mission continues. The work continues. He is not here. The empty tomb, in every instance the empty tomb is mentioned, it is a problem for the first Christian. We think of it now as some great thing. Oh, the tomb is empty. They didn't feel that way at all. The empty tomb, empty tomb was a, simply a problem for them. They didn't know what to make of it. But the experience was that he is not here. And so we have a story of angels telling the, telling the two that he is not here. Why are you looking for him among the dead? That's the experience. These two angelic figures say, why are you looking for him among the dead? The most alive person in the history of human persons, and you've come to this pathetic place of the dead to try to find him. You're not going to find him here. Well, they went to tell others that, and it just disturbed the others. They didn't want to hear. They didn't know what to make of it. They turned to the scriptures and the prophets and the Psalms. They knew for certain one thing, which was what had happened to them in his presence. And Peter knew more than anybody else the one thing that had to be known. Peter betrayed Jesus, or denied Jesus, and uh, more than anybody else, 
more obviously, more overtly than anybody else. And so more overtly and more obviously than anybody else, he experienced forgiveness. And at the moment he experienced forgiveness, he called his friends together and he said he's still alive. Because I had happened to me what could only happen in his presence. He's alive. Who can argue with that? This concludes Gil Bailey's Reflections on the Bible. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.